This week's critic podcast comes from the drawing room of Professor David Starkey's house, and I'm with Professor Starkey himself. Welcome to the critic podcast. Thank you. Um, in this month's edition, you write about the role of Parliament, prorogation, but also about the uh, different interpretations of what the role of Parliament is. Is it there to uh, uh, to insert and interpret the will of the executive, or is, is it there to be a check on the executive? You, you start your article, David, with a discussion of two of the founding fathers of uh, Westminster parliamentary government, Simon de Montfort and his nemesis, King Edward I, in the 13th century. What were their visions of Parliament, and what did they hope to achieve by by calling the, calling each Parliament? I think the important thing to understand is that Parliament is like the god Janus. It faces in two directions, not so much like the god into the past and into the future. You know, he's the god of the turning of the year. Parliament is a double thing, uh, that it is both a check on government and a means of government. Uh, this means, of course, fundamentally, and again, this is going to underpin everything I'm talking about now, and so many of the things I write uh, in the magazine, it means that the attempted imposition of the universalist, liberalist doctrine of separation of powers is peculiarly wrong in Britain. It does not work. It just leads to the horror, for example, that we were liberated from last November um, by the transformation uh, with a, a general election, with a serious government, uh, with a proper prime minister. This goes fundamentally right back to the beginning of Parliament itself. This is my essential point. Um, we cannot understand our constitution except historically, except in terms of its development. Parliament arises, it's 800 years old. Remember, we talk of the British Parliament. Shh, it's not. It's the English Parliament. The Scots are an add-on in 1707. The whole... It, the way you actually describe Parliament, the sequence of Parliaments, Scotland is simply an add-on to an existing structure. The Scottish Parliament was entirely different and vastly weaker than the English Parliament. It has a single effective period, which is from the Glorious Revolution, 1689 to 1707. The English Parliament, on the other hand, is this extraordinary thing. We genuinely have an 800-year constitution. One of the things that makes Britain so extraordinary, so wonderful, so complex, uh, so hard to understand, so separate from virtually every other country. Uh, as I said, Parliament goes back to the beginning of the, the process of this constitution, which is born in conflict. The purpose of politics is to resolve conflict. So if, essentially, political change is born in conflict. The great conflict of Magna Carta, which itself was a very double-sided thing. Magna Carta begins as an act of brutal aristocratic rebellion against a king, which is designed to impose, and if the original version of Magna Carta had survived, would have imposed an aristocratic republic that holds a king in a vice. However, um, it does not succeed. 
uh, we all think it does. Oh, no, it doesn't. Uh, the Magna Carta, oh, no, it doesn't. It's like um, where pantomime and history and parliamentary history coincide. Oh, no, it doesn't. Magna Carta does not survive in its original form. Its original form is this act of deliberate limitation on monarchy. It is then reissued a year later in radically different circumstances in which the king at issue, John, has died, in which the French invasion, which had actually powered, the, powered later on powers the barons, is being defeated, and in which there is a new minor king, a little boy, Henry, the, Henry, uh, Henry III, and an extraordinary uh, agent, uh, regent, a man, uh, um, uh, the Earl, uh, Earl Marshall, uh, William Marshall, um, uh, Earl Marshall, uh, and what he does, he changes Magna Carta into a proto-constitution. He drops all the radical clauses. And in other words, the second Magna Carta is a royalist document. And this is the Magna Carta that survives. And thus, in other words, from the very beginning of Parliament, from its original roots, there's this double growth. And then as the century goes on, as the 13th century goes on, you can see two major figures emerging. One of them is Simon de Montfort. He is this great French aristocrat who is in very, very high favour later on with, 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 with uh, Henry III, marries, the, marries his sister, becomes Earl of Leicester, an enormously powerful figure. But essentially, he buys into the aristocratic interpretation of Magna Carta. And springing out of Magna Carta, out of the demand in Magna Carta, that taxation can only happen with some form of consent, you start to develop these regular-ish assemblies. They haven't yet assumed a fixed form or a fixed membership, um, but de Montfort takes these over, and again, in the heat of battle, uh, after he's actually captured the royal family, including uh, the heir to the throne, we'd say Prince Edward, they called him the Lord Edward, he creates, recreates the machinery uh, of Magna Carta to hold the king in a vice, and he creates, or recreates, this assembly, parliament. He adds for the first time, uh, rather than just the great abbots, the great bishops, the greater lords and the lesser lords, he adds representatives, this key element, representatives of the shires, the counties, and representatives of the towns. Uh, but it's designed to bridle the monarchy. A year or two later, he's defeated and horribly, um, horribly, and he's dead happily by the time that, that, that Prince Edward gets his hands on him, but he's chopped up as a traitor um, and apparently you know, forgotten and oblivion. But the body he set up is then astonishingly as a break on monarchy, is then picked up by Edward I, the first of our real great legislator kings. And he spots that this body, well, if all the lords sit there, all the abbots, all the bishops, all the royal councillors and representatives from every county and from every town, do you know what? Everybody is represented in it. So if I can get this group to agree to something, I can then say, and my judges will say, everybody agrees to this. Therefore, everybody is bound by it. So you use this first 
to pass huge numbers of reforming statutes that really formed the basis of common law, the Statute of Westminster and all the rest of it. But then you also use it as an instrument of taxation, fulfills the clause in Magna Carta, and, and you use it to finance your huge wars, the wars of imperial conquest against Wales and, 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 and against Scotland. The first absolutely successful, the second nearly so, but, but collapsing. So you can see then that these two figures, echoing different aspects of Magna Carta itself, transfer that doubleness into Parliament. So the great problem is with the way that we approach parliamentary history. Historians tend to focus on one face of it and not the other face. So one group of historians, the traditional Whig historians, uh, who of course you know, culminate um, in, 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 the, in the great figures of the 19th century, like Macaulay, they concentrate on, and you go around, um, you go around the Palace of Westminster and you look at the great wall paintings. These are the moments when Parliament stands up to the government, you know, Charles I, Henry III, all, all, all of this stuff, um, uh, at Parliament as opposition, which means you focus on the 17th century. On the other hand, I was part of this process, and indeed all my teachers and those who were influential um, uh, on me, like particularly Conrad Russell, Earl Russell, Bertrand Russell's uh, youngest son, occasionally cruelly referred to as his final mistake. Um, but, 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 but Conrad was this extraordinary figure of uh, both a very great historian and a not bad liberal politician. He was one of the last hereditary peers actually uh, sitting in the Lords. And he took the very different view of Parliament. He focused on Parliament as a means of government. And he saw the 17th century as not this triumph of Parliament, but rather the breakdown of Parliament. In other words, it was when Parliament fails to tax, it's when Parliament disagrees with the government so strongly it won't legislate. And what is so fascinating is that is exactly what happened to Parliament under Theresa May. When you get the loss of the, of the necessary majoritarian principle in Parliament, Parliament dissolves into a series of fragments. The only thing it can do, it can't actually resist the government. I mean, the, what was the, you know, if, if you look at it, Parliament didn't actually stop the government from doing, well, it stopped the government from doing what it wanted to do, but it couldn't agree itself to do anything at all. It was merely a block. It was, it was merely like an, in, an ineffective dam. Um, and this is Conrad's point. Um, that a parliament uh, that, 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 as it were, isn't managed, isn't directed by the executive, is a useless parliament. And right at the beginning of the 17th century, uh, this was understood in the reign of James I, um, with the wonderful phrase being coined, this is the crisis of parliaments. If parliaments won't do things, if they won't cooperate with government, if they're simply a nuisance, if all they do is say no, 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 and are chaired by somebody like Speaker Burke or Speaker Lentil, what use is parliament? And this is more than a rhetorical question, because, again, we think of the, uh, the, the British to English Parliament as a sort of modern thing. It's not. It's, as I've been pointing out, it's a weird antique survival. 
Everywhere else in Europe, you have these representative assemblies. The French Estates General, uh, the, 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 the assemblies of the United Provinces, the Hungarian Diet, the Polish Diet, they all die. Because what they are, they're simply a nuisance. An efficient government requires they're removed. This is what the so-called absolutism uh, of the late 16th, 17th, 18th century is about. These parliaments are just a nuisance. They just get in the way of doing anything. And you can still see this is the case in France. The parliamentary system that was set up um, in France uh, in the wake of of the parliamentary, uh, in the wake of the restoration uh, after the uh, fall of Napoleon and the restoration of the monarchy, the, 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 the second, third uh, and fourth French republics all try to be forms of parliamentary government. They are completely hopeless. They don't work. And what does de Gaulle do? He effectively replaces a parliamentary system of government with dear Monsieur Macron, you know, je suis Jupiter, with an elective monarchy. Um, and Parliament is there, just it's, I mean, the French Parliament is just noises off. Um, uh, it, it's designed you know, to uh, give the humble folk um, who haven't had the benefit of going to uh, the Ecole de uh, you know, Ena, haven't had the advantage of going to that, a, a little opportunity to sound off. And your Prime Minister is just a tissue onto which you, you know, blow your nose and throw away when there's an inconvenience. Um, so, in other words, Parliaments fail and very frequently fail. And the peculiarity of Britain is that we came up with a system that makes Parliament a success, but it can only be when it is managed by the executive. And but that was a very long answer to a short question, but well, I apologise. We're, we're, we're covering many centuries of parliamentary history. And your point about it, it, it can only be effective when it's managed is really another way of saying it can only be effective when the government has a has a good working majority. Yes, and what I think is also very clear is that this is the way it always has worked. Um, what we now know, if we look at parliaments going right back to the late Middle Ages, the 16th century, to the time of Elizabeth and whatever, is there are always people in, particularly the House of Commons, who act as managers for government business. And it usually works. Um, the great exception uh, is the period of the 17th century when it doesn't and there are, there are absolutely fundamental differences over religion and foreign policy uh, and so on and of course all the tensions of the new union of crowns between England and Scotland with two very different approaches to religion uh, and so on there but what from from the uh, so-called restoration of political stability uh, that's Jack Plum's phrase at the beginning of the 18th century you can then see right through particular methods by which Parliament is managed, developing. The first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole, achieves this extraordinary thing. Parliament has asserted itself against the monarchy. Parliament has created a monarchy, the revolution of 1688-89, which bears an extraordinary resemblance to Magna Carta but with a very different outcome. Uh, Magna Carta would have worked if the uh, French prince that they had brought in to unseat Louis, uh, uh, whom they brought in to unseat King John, if he'd actually won. He didn't. He's defeated by, by William Marshall. Um, on the other hand, in 1689, the foreign prince who's brought in, William of Orange, does defeat 
or the king flees, James II flees, which means you don't actually need a military conquest, but effectively it is a military conquest with a foreign prince. And the other thing is, um, in 1215, the barons weren't clever enough to say to Prince Louis, Louis, right, you swear to the terms of the charter before we'll accept you as king. Oh, they did in 1688-89. William and Mary had formally to swear to the new terms, which in one sense makes the monarchy the creature of parliament. But what then happens is uh, with Robert Walpole coming in with the new dynasty uh, after the, 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 the secondary Stuart dynasty dies out with, with Queen Anne um, uh, in 1713, what you get is you get the residual power of the monarchy, particularly in terms of patronage, being used to manage parliament. And you then get this astonishing leap in British power. It's partly the result of, of Scotland and England uh, actually having parliamentary union. But it's above all the fact that you've got the power of parliament doing what parliament was always supposed to do, raising tax and passing law, but now managed through the processes of what we uh, rather cruelly call corruption, um, uh, which unifies this structure, which turns it into an instrument of power, and powers, uh, again, the resemblances to the 13th century, astonishing, powers Britain in this extraordinary process of imperial expansion, which is not, of course, any longer within the British Isles, but is first in Europe, under Marlborough, and then across the world uh, in the 18th century. Uh, and then what is very striking, of course, is that that process, that reshaping of Parliament, I think gives Parliament its necessary second lease of life. And if you then leap forward to the great years of revolutions, to the period of the French Revolution itself, all over Europe, um, uh, most, you know, most evident in France itself, the feeling is uh, that there can only be the incorporation of those outside the aristocratic, landed and high commercial elites in politics if you completely destroy the existing structure of power. What is remarkable in Britain is that doesn't happen. There is a similar clamour for new groups to be included. But what the new groups say is, we don't want to destroy Parliament, we want representation inside Parliament. And that leads to this extraordinary process of parliamentary reform uh, in the 19th century, culminating in the 1860s and the 1880s, uh, with the actual Tories doing it, by the way, bizarrely, stealing the clothes of the Whigs and giving the vote even to the skilled working class male. And it's at that point, of course, that a new method of parliamentary management emerges, the method of political parties. What happens is, um, uh, with this new electorate, this much enlarged electorate, political parties become much more formal, you have manifestos, you stand with clear political labels, um, and you are returned, though nobody bothered to tell Dominic Grieve, you are returned uh, as a representative of a political party, not in your own right. And you are then uh, obligated to follow the broad line of your political party. And from the 1880s onwards, of course, is also when the procedures of the House of Commons adopt to this. And from the 1880s, this is the period of the famous Erskine May 
and the clerk of the parliaments, or he's actually the junior clerk of the parliaments, the clerk of the parliaments is the clerk of the lords, he's the clerk of the commons. It's the period when Erskine May uh, develops um, his handbook of parliamentary procedure, which is designed above all to give the government, which commands the majority in the commons, control over the business of the house. And it is this double position of the position of the party vis-a-vis -vis the MP and the government vis-a-vis -vis the House that creates the new method of managing Parliament that is the basis of the modern Parliament and the enormous expansion of the British state in the latter days of empire, the First World War, the Second World War, the creation of the welfare state, and so on. Uh, and so you, but of course... Always within this structure, Parliament retains the power to say to the government, Oi, think again. It retains the capacity, you know, to do a 1939. It retains the capacity, you know, to make it inevitable that Thatcher resigns. Um, but the idea which, you know, powered the, the, the absurd decision of the Supreme Court in the prorogation case, that the only purpose of Parliament is to hold the government to account, is a lunatic parody of the processes of parliamentary history. It can only arise out of absolute ignorance on the one hand, and the desire to superimpose on the British Parliament entirely alien methods of understanding it. I mean, and here, can we just talk briefly about the question of separation of powers? Um, uh, right at the beginning, I think it was my first article for the critic, um, I took this modern juju doctrine, of this thing that apparently is the basis of all good government, that there should be the separate spheres of the, uh, of the legislative, the executive and the judiciary. The history of Britain is completely contradictory. All of these powers arise from this thing we call the crown, which is the monarchy in its abstraction, right? And uh, which is why the royal coat of arms appears over all of them, over the judge uh, sitting on his bench, why we call it King's Bench or Queen's Bench, Queen's Council and so on, um, over um, the, uh, you know, on the podium when the Prime Minister speaks outside Downing Street, um, and over the throne, both of the, well, the chair, though of course Burke would have wanted it to be a throne, of the Speaker, uh, and of the, uh, and behind, of course, there is the actual royal throne in the Lords in, on the Woolsack, in front of which um, it used to be the Chancellor, it's now the, the Lord Speaker, um, sits. Um, in other words, the idea of separation of powers is utterly inapplicable and impossible to apply to Britain. And the attempt at doing so leads to constitutional vandalism. And in that first article, I pointed out that the, the origin of this article, of this idea, which of course is French, uh, uh, when there's an absolute universal rule, all bad ideas are French. Um, the reason is very simple. It's what Burke understood, what Edmund Burke understood. The French like abstract logic. Abstract logic is useless for describing human activity. Um, it's why the French are no good at science. Um, that proper human thought is inductive not deductive. It arises from fragmentary experience, from the reality of, 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 of experience. Um, and and M what Montesquieu did, um, he formulates his doctrine of the separation of powers in England, 
on the basis of living in England for two years. And he has, amongst the, the silly slavish worshippers of, of, of abstract French thinkers, this enormous reputation as the, you know, the, the originator of anthropology, the English being the savages. You know, he comes and views these strange savages. It transpires he speaks barely a word of English. He spends his time in entirely French-speaking circles and he gets his notions of the separation of powers from a mad pamphleteer, a man called Viscount Bolingbroke. And the idea of separation of powers is completely rejected at the time. He writes about it at the time that Walpole is, on the contrary, cementing the grasp of, 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 of the executive uh, uh, on, on, on the commons. And it's always been disastrous. The attempt under Blair of imposing the separation of powers is what leads to the demotion of the role of the Lord Chancellor and the creation of the absurdity of the Supreme Court and, of course, the incorporation of, 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 the, of the Human Rights Act, which, remember, the European Commission on Human Rights is never intended to be a piece of legislation. It's a treaty. It's, it's, it's a convention. It's intended to offer guidance, which is why, if you actually look at its terms, uh, you will see that uh, nowhere is there any clear statement about anything. It says, uh, yes, we have freedom of speech, but subject to considerations of uh, family life, uh, public decency, public security, which means, of course, everything has to be ruled on by a judge. But it was never intended to apply to individual cases, you know, which leads to this horror. Um, so, and again, the, the whole way in which we've seen the devaluation of, civil, of, of criminal and civil justice would never have happened if we'd had a Lord Chancellor sitting in the cabinet. I mean, do you think uh, that a Mackay of Clash firm would have allowed that to happen? So the, the again, the, you know, the absurd preposterous doctrines that were absorbed by the Supreme Court under Brenda Hale and Lord Panic, uh, Hale as, as, the, as the presiding judge and Panic as, uh, as, as the QC for Gina Miller and the moneyed interest. Um, I mean, th th they are doctrines which are wholly alien to English law, to, 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 to English history, to the English constitution. Uh, and, and they reflect the, this preposterous, doctrine of separation of powers. And if you want to see the effect of the separation of powers, look at the permanent stasis of American government, because that directly and deliberately reflects it. And you have this enormously elaborate machinery of Congress, which most of the time can do absolutely bugger all. Alien, alien ideas. To use, to use a highly technical yes. phrase that us <laughs> parliamentary historians are very fond of. In, in the words of, 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 of Sir Edward Cook. But, yeah. but, uh, but uh, the alien intrusions we may now have in terms of the power of, of the Supreme Court, of the, of the Human Rights Act, and also the introduction of, of referenda as well. We have these, these modern innovations, uh, and we are where we are with them. Given that, have we actually broken from the previous seven or eight hundred years of, of parliamentary history and are we creating a very different form of government now, uh, which, which the ideas of both de Montfort and Edward I are, are now entirely divorced, from if, which they're divorced? If we'd had this conversation six months ago, I'd have said you were probably right. Um, but uh, what's, uh, and indeed I actually wrote that maybe we would have to think uh, about um, 
having a formal separation, a genuine separation of powers. You see, if we had a set genuine separation of powers, the only way we could make it work would be by having the office of prime minister be, to be directly elective. In other words, subject to direct, but you'd have a separate vote as the Americans mm. do for the president. And that gives the executive a separate leverage against uh, the ex uh, against the legislative. Otherwise, you get what you're now seeing is the case throughout Europe, chronically weak executives. Mm -hmm. you're, you know, the road that we were going down was the road of Italy. Mm -hmm. It was the road of Spain. In other words, where you have to have constant... It's a road which I think um, Ireland is now going to go down, as its two-party system fragments. You, you made rude remarks, or rudish remarks, or you put referenda um, in, as it were, this this universalist, liberalist box. You see, the effect of referenda in Britain has been completely the opposite. And I'm now going to sound really, really old-fashioned. Maybe trusting uh, your average thicko Brit like my own family, the origins of my family, you know, northern working, we're suddenly fashionable. Uh, I know I've carefully overlaid it, but I was, I was born in the far north of England from a family rooted in, in, in you know, Workington Man Towns and Oldham Rochdale and all the rest of it. The referenda... And we've had two key ones, one that we've forgotten, one that we all remember. Reaffirm the traditional British constitution. There was the referendum which rejected the alternative vote, on which, remember, all the key figures, starting with Dominic Cummings, Matthew Elliott, me, we all cut our teeth mm. on that referendum. And it was a conscious appeal to the traditional British way of doing things by first past the post, which normally gives you a clear decisive result. Um, uh, and then the second, which was, of course, the thing that really shook the governing elite, uh, the liberal governing elite, which was the second referendum on Brexit, followed by the general election result uh, last December. And if you put those things together, they seem to me to amount to a resounding reaffirmation of the way we have traditionally done things. Now, whether it turns out to be such is subject to two things. It is subject to, first and overridingly, that Brexit is not a disaster. If Brexit is a disaster, goodbye Britain and certainly goodbye the British Constitution as it stood. And you will go to, I'm sure, uh, the liberal elites will say, I told you so, and we will effectively uh, introduce a political structure, with, as is in common with most of Europe, that makes sure that nothing very serious is decided at the ballot box ever again. And the second thing is, will Boris's government actually grasp the nettle? There is supposed to be, and we have an Attorney General allegedly committed to it, there is supposed to be a commission that looks at the relationship, the three elements of the Constitution, of the, of the legislative, the executive and the judiciary. That has got to do something. It's got to cut back on judicial review. It has got, I would repeal uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Human Rights Act. Not that I disapprove of the notion of rights, though I think they have to be counterbalanced by a very clear notion of duties, but I think the drafting of, of the European Convention is utterly unsuitable for English law. It is not... English law is specific. The, 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 the European... Uh, as you look, for example, at the equivalents in America, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the equivalent of, of, of the... Uh, 
uh, section on freedom of speech, the First Amendment simply says Congress shan't do anything to limit the freedom of the press. Mm. It, it, in other words, it's an absolutely straightforward. You, there's very little room for interpretation. Whereas if you look at the equivalent clause, which I recited, uh, of the European Convention, it is it requires judicial mm. construction um, and, and just opens a co coach and horses. So there is this double test. Is Brexit at least not a disaster? And will this government actually do what it promised? Um, and if it does, I think, um, the Britain has, England has, whatever Britain will emerge as from the tensions over Scotland and whatever, um, I think has got an extraordinary fortunate future because this constitution, this 800-year constitution, has now produced the only stable government in Europe. You know, it is the only stable government in Europe. Um, I think, uh, however bizarre it may seem, it actually does all the things that we thought government couldn't do anymore. I think it gives a certain sense of general participation. It gives a sense, because of the fact you have one MP, can per constituency, and the constituency is a highly specific place, it gives a sense of locality. It also gives you um, an assembly which, by definition, has to look to the whole country and also has to look outside. It gives you, again, a government which is perpetually subject to scrutiny. We are the only country with anything like Prime Minister's Question Time. We have people like you who are a nosy, inquisitive and aggressive and completely tiresome press. You know, were I a politician, again, if Boris decided to do it, I'd legislate against you. <laughs> but, but you see what I mean? Um, and and it, it, again, all of this just flies in the face of liberal opinion. Um, the notion that we could have got it right that these strange people in the Middle Ages, you know, when we all know it's ages of faith and credulity and, and they hadn't heard of, you know, the Bill of Rights and they tortured people and, you know, they didn't respect the human rights of heretics and other mm. such wicked things. <laughs> the fact they might actually have fundamentally got it right. I, I, we've emerged from this period of uncivil war uh, over the last three, three and a half years it seems to me it's a bit paradoxical situation in, in the Remainer Parliament in that the um, MPs who were seeking to block any meaningful form of Brexit in many ways were claiming that they were standing up for parliamentary sovereignty, mm. um, which at one level is obviously intriguing because it then begs the question, why, why did they uh, believe in the ultimate sovereignty of the European Union? Precisely. But, but secondly... Uh, it goes back to their interpretation of what we've been talking about today, which is, is Parliament there to, to challenge the executive or, or, to, or, or to make it its, its policies effectual? Um, did the Remainer MPs simply misunderstand uh, parliamentary history, as you see it, or were they just uh, um, clothing their own arguments in, 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 a, in a historical fashion? <laughs> see, that's very unfair. Um, there's, there's a wonder, one, of, one, of, one of my favourite books is F.M. Cornford's magnificent Microcosmographia Academica, uh, which first really got me interested in politics when I was a student at Cambridge. Um, and he has this wonderful uh, distinction there between faction and party. A faction is you. It is your wicked conspiracy against the public interest, putting forward um, 
uh, these outrageous schemes. They may be cloaked in the national interest, but they're just designed to further you and your friends. On the other hand, a party are my schemes, and these are schemes, of course, designed to further the public interest, which just happen to benefit me and my friends. You see what I mean? And, and both sides of the argument can deploy history. This is precisely the point that I'm making. The, 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 the face of Parliament is a double face. Um, and what the Remainers did, they exploited very deliberately the history of the 17th century Parliament. I mean, do you know the Fixed Term Parliament Act was a direct echo of the Act of 1641, which uh, the, the Long Parliament couldn't be dissolved without its consent, which empowers you know, Parliament to defeat Charles I in the Civil War. That's, you know, it, it couldn't have happened without that Act, and we actually, you know, redo it. The way in which uh, Burko behaved was exactly like the William Lentil, mm -hmm. the, the speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you got uh, people like Dominic Grieve consciously citing uh, Edward Burke in, uh, Edmund Burke in one of his less intelligent modes saying, oh, the purpose of an MP is not to be a delegate, mm -hmm. it is to be a representative and to exercise his judgment. Completely, of course, forgetting that Edmund Burke lived in the 18th century and we live in the 20th and the 21st and in and between the 18th century and the 21st is the creation of democracy and mass parties and, and the fact that MPs, as I'm afraid Dominic discovered mm. in his sweet little constituency, even though he was quite a popular MP and even though it was quite a Remainer constituency, he still lost mm. because its people vote for the parliament, sorry, for the party, uh, not for the particular MP. The only area where I think there was conscious dishonesty so let me just say, parliamentary history can be interpreted and understood in different ways, and there are precedents for everything. Um, uh, the, the area, I think, of absolute, deliberate, transparent and shocking dishonesty is on the question of parliamentary sovereignty. Parliamentary sovereignty, in its full and absolute sense, really only develops in the reign of Henry VIII when it is designed to power the first Brexit. In other words, from the very beginning, parliamentary sovereignty is associated with an idea of national sovereignty. Um, and the parliament of Henry VIII, um, well, the, the parliament in which Henry VIII declares, you know, we in no time stand so high in our estate royal as in time of parliament, that is the parliament which carries out the first Brexit that breaks with another universalist organisation, the Roman Catholic Church, which again, like the European Union, powers itself by supranational taxation and by supranational law, which is why Henry VIII was going to have to get his divorce from Rome. And, and instead you say, no, we shall be a sovereign parliament in a sovereign state and sufficient to ourselves and able, just as Boris is saying, just as, in, just as indeed our negotiator uh, said um, uh, 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 when, when, he, when he, he put down our new terms to the European Union, we are a sovereign state. We will set our own rules. We will enter into a civilised discourse with you. Henry VIII did not say he would enter into a civilised discourse with the Pope. But, but we will be a sufficient a country sufficient to ourselves. And you see, again, Graham, this seems to me to be something utterly fundamental. Um, uh, that, that the assertion of national sovereignty has been seen by the Remainer elite as primitive, you know, armpit scratching, knuckle dragging, and all the rest of it. It isn't. 
Um, it is the thing that powered 1939. It is the thing that powered the American Revolution. It is the thing that leaves a unique inheritance of the British Empire, which is this series of self-governing territories, each one of which colonies go into Canberra, go particularly um, to, 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 uh, to Ottawa and look at a building which consciously echoes the Gothic of the Palace of Westminster, this sense of self-government, this sense of self-government as central. And I think that you know, if we're looking at all the agonies and discontents of globalization and whatever, um, uh, uh, that sense of being responsible for yourself of of an of, of, of an autonomy which is which is not again it's it's not chauvinism we leave chauvinism to the French um, it is simply a sense well finally we run our own affairs and, and so there's nothing disgraceful about that and now that we do run our own affairs again if the government calls upon you to give advice on how the constitution should be rebalanced what would your advice be? A lot of it's being done already. And the thing, it's very striking. The first thing, that, and this was done without anything of the government, it was simply the change of Speaker. Speaker Hoyle has restored the functioning of the Commons as it's supposed to be. Not this absurd preening from the chair, not this tearing up of precedent. He has simply gone back to Erskine May and the House is operating as the House always did operate. Um, I think there are more fundamental things to be done with the judiciary. I've indicated what they are. I mean, I would, the term Supreme Court is absolutely alien to, uh, is absolutely alien uh, to the British tradition of government. I think it should go. Um, uh, I think that, again, the whole way in which so-called public law, um, uh, Jonathan Sumption's talked a lot about this, the whole way in which public law has developed um, is profoundly dangerous. It has almost no input of statute. It's, in other words, parliaments had nothing to do with it. It's a series of absurd judicial speculations. Again, the whole doctrine of separation of powers has never been considered by Parliament. As I said, it's a logical absurdity. You can't have a separation of powers if the Prime Minister sits in the Commons. Mm. No, the, the government, by definition in England, in Britain, the government sits in the legislative. And properly, the high judiciary do too. Um, and the, the, I, think you, I think I would like to see a, a sort of constitutionalist act of parliament, um, which, which, it would sound preposterous, wouldn't it, Starkey's doctrine, a, <laughs> a new William Marshall or whatever, but there's room for, for antique vanity. But something like the account that I've given needs official sanction. Because otherwise, preposterous bodies like the Constitution Unit at University College peddle this myth of, 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 of our parliamentary history. And these, they're really dangerous. They're not properly academic bodies at all. There is this movement based on Charter 88, mm -hmm. which is an attempt at the imposition of a kind of quasi-French, quasi-American model on Britain. And it you know, does not fit. It's been repudiated seriously by you know twice by referenda uh, it you know the lesson of the, that last general election is finally that verdict has to be accepted 
Well, it, it, it sounds as if the, the general election has started what future historians might call the era of, of the Starkey Doctrine. Uh, <laughs> Professor David Starkey, wonderful picking over the past and present of, of our parliament. And thank you very much for joining us today. A pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, but why not get The Critic in print? Right now we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to thecritic.co.uk for details.